Second Peter chapter three. You can turn with me there. We will be finishing our time in Second Peter next Sunday, at which point we will move into a book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Today we're in Second Peter chapter three, verses fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. Let me give you just a couple of highlights to get us back on track here from verses ten through thirteen. Peter's saying that in light of, of Jesus' imminent, imminent return, it's coming. Because of that, because we know that it's coming, it matters how you live now. He's going to repeat these kinds of things. The ESV study Bible I pointed out last week has a helpful note. It says a second coming should be motivation to live a holy life. I like that. Now, we talked at length about some of the details of the Greek words last week and what Peter is saying. It's not super clear. We're not sure if God's going to start completely over with brand new heavens and new earth or if he's going to cleanse what's here with fire and start over that way. But we know he's going to do it. It's going to happen. And instead of arguing about some of the details of how that we're not totally sure on, Peter says, don't do that. Instead, live spending your time living properly in eager expectation of Christ's coming. This, This really isn't that complicated if you think of it that way. The ends of the heavens and the ends of the earth as we know it are coming when Christ comes in his return. So where do we go? This this judgment is here. Peter talks about it happening with fire. So where do we run to flee from the coming judgment? Only to Jesus. Only to Christ and salvation. He's the rock of our salvation, our refuge. Romans 5, 6, we ended with last week for at just the right time. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And so today we look at verses 14 through 16, which contain some really deep encouragements that I hope you'll leave here encouraged by, but also another warning about those who oppose the truth of God. So let's read this, these three verses together and then we'll have a word of prayer. Second Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. At peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, we're blessed to have the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter, Scripture, inspired by the Spirit through the pens of these men and many others. Lord, it's it's our desire, it's my hope as students of your Word to look at these things in a deeper way today, but not just for head knowledge to gain uh, book smarts, Lord, but so that our lives might be changed, that you might change my heart as a result of your Word here this morning. Do that in us, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Look at that. The first couple of words in this section. Therefore, we've, we've talked about this a lot in times, at times. Um, it, it kind of calls our minds back to what has just been written. So we said, he said a statement and then he says, therefore. So we have to think what's coming is in light of what he just read or wrote. He says, therefore, beloved. He uses the word beloved or beloved. He says six times in these two letters specifically when referring to his readers. So he's writing this to people, and in First and Second Peter, he uses this term six times. 
not counting the one where he calls Paul this. He says it's about Paul. He loves these people. Peter's writing to Christians in the Roman area, and he loves them deeply. He would give them a hug. If he was there, that's, that's what he would have said. Dear brothers and sisters, and he would have wrapped them in. What's one of the most loving things that Paul could, or Peter rather, could do for the Christians in Rome? Tell them what God says, right? <laughs> Give them a hug for sure to show that physical embrace and, and, and oneness and closeness. But the most loving thing he could do for them at a, at a distance is to share with them the truth of what God is saying. So he says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this, since you are waiting for these things, since you are looking forward to this. And so this verifies what we've been saying the last several weeks. Christians eagerly anticipate Christ's imminent return. We look forward to it. Peter assumes that these Christians are looking forward to it. And it begs the question then, are you? Am I? Are we looking forward to the return of Christ? Now, I thought a lot about this this week, had a lot of conversations with others. And it, it, it's not hard to understand that this is, the coming of Christ is a bittersweet thing in some regard. On, on one hand, we look around and we see the sinfulness of this world on display regularly, obviously. On that same hand, we look inwardly and we see the sinfulness of our own hearts, don't we? Our own flesh coming out and we long for the day. Paul says in Romans that we're groaning for the day when Christ comes to restore all things. When he finally does away with sin and its effects forever. On one hand, we see that and we say, come Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, we have people whom we love that don't know him. And if he comes when they're found in that state, we know the end. Judgment is there. We've got friends and family who haven't recognized God's patience with them. They live life. We've talked about some already today. They live life as though it's all about them. And they have not put their hope in Christ and submitted to his authority. And so they're going to be judged accordingly. We know that as Christians. So on one hand, we say, come Lord Jesus. But on the other hand, we say, am I going to be, am I going to be upset on that day? And so th- these thoughts go through our minds. Now, I don't know that Peter necessarily addresses that issue directly in the text today, but I think what he has said about the day of the Lord should provide us with some peace. Think about this. If God is good, and I I would hope we would agree that he is, if God is sovereign over all, again, I would would hope we agree that he is. So if God is good and sovereign, then whether he, he judges on the day of the Lord or whether he shows mercy, on the day of the Lord, he's still good and sovereign. That day doesn't change who he is. In fact, it comes out of who he is. And so perhaps unintentionally, we can maybe in this, this thinking, this thought process, we can kind of elevate our own understanding and ourselves. We can elevate ourselves to be kinder than God. And we say, well, how, how can God be loving if he would do that on that day? I certainly wouldn't do that. You see how we elevate ourselves into thinking that we're kinder and wiser than God? When we start thinking we would know better how to dispense justice or mercy, we're in a dangerous place. 
Peter's already told us, look back at chapter 2, verse 9. He's already told us. He says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to rescue, and God knows how to judge way better than me and you. I'm convinced that no redeemed person will be able to disagree with God on judgment day. I don't know that anyone will disagree with God on judgment day, but certainly not Christians. So if we're there watching, there's maybe some evidence that says that we may be a great cloud of witnesses. If we're there watching, none of us are going to be able to condemn God for ruling incorrectly about someone's salvation or lack thereof. I don't think on that day of judgment when the Lord comes back or when Christ returns, I don't think any Christian will be disappointed at all. I think we'll glory in the fact that our bridegroom has come and justice is perfectly displayed. So whatever God does is right and good because, as I said, these things come out of his character, which is right and good. He's perfect in all that he does. So as Christians, we don't have to fear the coming of Christ because you have loved ones who don't know him yet. Don't fear. I would say instead, recognize God's patience in your life and theirs and boldly preach the gospel to them. Reminding them that God's patience is salvation to everyone who believes on his name. And that's what Peter's going to say in verse 15. But I think here Peter assumes that Christians are anticipating Christ's return with joy, with gladness, with expectation, looking forward to new heavens, to new earth. And since they are, he says, since you look forward to these things, and he says, do something. So look at, look at verse 14. But he repeats something here that he said back in chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And in Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Be diligent to be found in him, by him, without spot or blemish, and at peace. So, be diligent literally means to use speed to accomplish something. Or to make an effort at laboring at something. So, we might say it this way. So if we don't say be diligent, we might say work hard at it. Be diligent. So, what are Christians Supposed to be diligent in. Well, Peter lists two things. In verse 14, he says, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And secondly, be diligent to be found at peace. Let's take these one at a time. To be found by him, some of your translations may actually say to be found in him. That little word there, by in, can be translated differently depending on the context. I don't think by found by him is a wrong way to interpret that. I don't think found in him is wrong, especially when you consider Philippians 3 verse 9, which says, be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, he says there, Paul does. So all those who are found in him on the day of Christ's coming are not found that way because of anything that they've done. Any righteousness in their own lives from keeping the law. This is what Paul is saying. He says any righteousness that's found in a Christian on the day of Christ's coming is there because of the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is, as Peter and Paul both agree, one without spot or blemish. Now that phrase Peter's used before in First Peter 
You can flip back there real quick. First Peter chapter one, verses 18 and 19. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So I think by Peter's use of that phrase, without spot or blemish, I think he's kind of making a connection between Christians living or Christians striving to live lives of holiness and also the effective and perfect blood of the lamb. So on the day of the Lord, will you be found by God without spot or blemish because of faith in Christ? If you put your faith in him, yes, absolutely. That's the only way a person can be saved. As you wait for the day of the coming of the Lord, should you be found by God living lives of holiness in accordance with that faith? Yeah, absolutely. That's what Peter is getting at here. So when Peter tells Christians to be diligent to be found by God, without spot or blemish, from God's point of view, it's done. It's finished. Christ on the cross successfully accomplished that work. But from my point of view and yours, with life yet to live here, as long as the Lord intends, there's work to be done. Be diligent, Peter says. Work hard at it. Strive to live lives marked by holiness and godliness. That's what he said back in verse 11. And I think this is where the peace comes in, in verse 14. He says, be diligent to be found by him at peace. I think this is kind of an interesting way of writing that Peter basically is saying, work hard to rest. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Work hard to be at peace. I think there's a fundamental aspect of, of being diligent here that we need to keep straight in our heads because maybe the American culture, maybe just our own... um, Nature tends to confuse these things. So it means to give attention to it, to work hard at it. But it doesn't mean give attention to something in order to earn God's love. Right? And we need to keep this straight. It doesn't mean to work hard at being so good that God loves you. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Any diligence in the Christian life is motivated and fueled by Christ's righteousness, not yours. So we can easily fall into this way of living where we think that we have to perform in order for God to love us, which is unusual because if you think and believe what Rome or Ephesians chapter two says that we've been saved by grace through faith, then why would we think if we're saved by grace through faith that we now have to maintain our salvation by our works? It it doesn't match. It doesn't align. And it's certainly not what scripture teaches. That kind of works-based salvation, you can see, is, is kind of like a dog chasing its tail. You've seen animals do this. We laugh because it's funny, but when we get into this pattern in our own spiritual life, it's not funny. It can be really difficult. But think about a dog chasing its tail. They're working, they're expending a lot of effort over and over to try to get something that already belongs to them. It's theirs. It's part of them. And yet they're wearing themselves out trying to get this again. You see yourself there sometimes? You can run yourself ragged and you can become ineffective in your faith by constantly trying to be found righteous in God's sight by any other way but by faith in Christ. Peace, the kind of peace that Peter is saying work hard to be found at peace, that kind of peace never comes by chasing your tail. 
It doesn't come by that kind of effort. Instead, what does Peter say? Well, he appeals to Paul for a moment. He says, hey, listen to, to our beloved brother Paul here. He makes it clear in his letter to the Ephesians church that peace with other people and peace with God only comes by the blood of the cross. That's Ephesians 2 verse 13. That's how this happens. Guys, remember the old hymn, Are You Washed in the Blood? That just came to my mind as I was thinking of these verses. The second verse of that hymn says, Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The, 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 The blood without spot or blemish? Rest and peace in this life and the next are only found in Christ. I think Peter's words about peace here certainly apply to uh, peace on judgment day. Every person who's found in Jesus, in Christ, dressed in his righteousness alone, will be at peace on that day. I don't think when Christ returns, we're going to be worried about our faults, all the things that we've messed up. You've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, he said back in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. I don't think we're going to be worried about anybody else on that day either. Those loved ones who have not put their faith in Christ, I don't think our mind is going to jump to them when we see Christ return in glory. I think we'll be too busy joining in the celebration and the song of our returned King. Conquering King, our Savior. I mean, Jesus himself identifies worry in Matthew chapter 6 as sin. Right? So we're not going to be worried about anything else on that day. I don't think we'll be disappointed on that day either. Disappointed. Some kids, my kids, asked me a very genuine and and heartfelt question. Are we going to be sad on that day when we don't see family in in heaven? Uh, I don't think we will be. Will we be aware of it? Probably, but I don't think we'll be disappointed. I don't think we'll be worried about them. I don't think we'll be disappointed at all. God's going to be even better than we imagine. I mean, think about this. Christ coming, returning in the clouds, the trumpets blowing, our Savior is there. Can you imagine being disappointed? Can you imagine being worried or afraid? Now, if you don't know Christ, maybe you're afraid. That's the sign of judgment. But in Christ, are are we disappointed in his coming at all? No. I think we're going to trust in the good, righteous, and sovereign purposes and will and work of God in that event. And I think we'll just leave it to him. Now look at verse 15. Peter says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So what does Paul say? about the judgment and patience of God. Well, you can flip over to Romans 2, verses 3 through 5. He says a lot about this. This is now the second time Peter has talked about the patience of our Lord. What does Paul say about it? Romans 2, 3 through 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Peter and Paul agree the kindness and patience of God are meant to lead people to repentance. That's really simple, isn't it? God has sustained you to the age that you are at, to the day you're in now, to lead you to repentance because of his kindness and goodness. Now, it's easy to walk through life, to just put your head down and go to work, come home, watch your TV, go to sleep and do it all again the next day. It's really easy to just put your head down and forget about the kindness of God. Let me encourage you to stop. Just pause. Just be at peace and consider God's kindness to you in his patience. Paul's clear that God's patience is a gift. It's a gift. It's, it's one of the riches that he bestows on the world, especially on Christians. And I don't want us to miss this because there's a point to it. God's patience leads us to repentance. And I don't want us to miss this because many people do. And they don't only miss it, but they twist. They twist it. That's what he says in verse 16. Many people do miss it, but they twist it to their own destruction. They own, they twist scripture and God's patience to their own destruction. He says, well, how do they twist it? Well, Peter's given us a lot of examples. Chapter two with false teachers and prophets. Chapter three with scoffers. Look at chapter two, verse one. He says that false teachers are going to arise up among the Christians in the church. And in verse three of chapter two, he says, They're going to bring in destructive heresies. Destruction is waiting for someone who believes these false teachings about God. Chapter 3, verse 4 through 6 says that scoffers will follow their own sinful desires by ridiculing the teaching of Christ's second coming. And in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day is coming to their own destruction, he says here. They miss the truth of what God has been saying through the apostles, through the prophets, and then they twist their words to their own demise. Now, Peter admits here, which is kind of funny and interesting, he says there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which is ironic. I think you pointed this out a couple weeks ago. It's ironic because there's some stuff in Peter's letters that are hard to understand. But he trusts that Paul is one of those men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what he says at the end of chapter 2, or chapter 1, rather, in Second Peter. I think it's interesting. This is kind of a side note. I think I have it listed in your notes. Kind of a side note. Apparently, at this point in history, Christians had already begun to put Paul's writings right alongside the Old Testament Scriptures. Okay, the canon was already starting all the way back here. Peter uses the, ter- the phrase, other scriptures. He's talking about works of the law, history, Psalms. He's, they quote this all the time. Think about this. I thought this was an interesting idea. If Peter was a jealous or petty man, he would never have brought Paul up here. Right? Because if you know the history between the two, they had some run-ins. Specifically, think about who Peter was. Um, in chapter 2 of Galatians, uh, Paul says that, that Peter was leading people astray in hypocrisy. 
And so he confronted him to his face in front of everybody about it. And now Peter says, our beloved brother, Paul. So were he a jealous or petty man, he wouldn't have brought Paul up into this. But he does. And he says, listen to this guy. He speaks the words of God. Beloved brother, he says. Remember what Peter is kind of known for throughout his life, right? Right at the beginning, Jesus calls him and Peter, like, right away starts putting his foot in his mouth, saying stuff before thinking about things, doing things before really thinking about things. Um, just, he rebukes Jesus, right? Son of God, he rebukes him because Jesus says, you guys are all going to leave. I'm going to be alone. I'm going to go to the cross and die. And he says, no, that'll never happen. I'll never leave you. And then like days later, he denies him three times in a matter of minutes. He lost his way. He's restored by Christ, but then he seems to lose his way again. And Paul rebukes him, brings him back. And yet here he is in the later stages of his life, calling believers to be at peace. Because I think he's at peace. Think about this. He doesn't sound afraid of Christ's return, does he? He welcomes it. He longs for it. He expects Christians in the church to long for it. Peter isn't making excuses for his prior mistakes. He's, he's, not, he's not even angry at the person who called him out for it. I think we could learn some lessons there. He doesn't sound nervous about the persecution or the opposition that he's facing or the church will face. He doesn't seem hopeless about the condition of the church either here, does he? He seems to be resting in Christ. He seems to be at peace. And so if, if there was anybody who could teach about the patience of God, Peter was probably that guy, right? We think about all those things that God was patient with him in. And he teaches us clearly here in chapter 3 that God's patience toward those who believe is their salvation. God's patience toward us is our salvation. It would be such a shame for us to walk through first and second Peter verse by verse and get to this and then miss it. I would hate for that to happen, to miss what Peter is saying here. He's saying scoffers who still exist count the delay of judgment as evidence that God doesn't exist. That's what they're saying. Well, where is this second coming? Nothing's changed. It's not coming. And they mock God and they see his patience as evidence that he's not there. You who hear his voice, that's, that's you. That's me. That's anyone under the sound of the teaching of the gospel. We need to count the patience of God as salvation. Believe today by grace through faith, not in our works, not in your works, lest anyone should boast, Paul says. Trusting Jesus alone for your right standing before God. Because his precious and spotless blood has broken down every barrier between you and God. So turn to Jesus and be saved. So when the scoffer sees God's patience, he chalks it up to indifference or the fact that God doesn't exist. But when a Christian, somebody changed by the blood, through the blood, by faith, when they see the patience of God, they recognize that's the only reason I can have faith. It's the only reason that I can be saved is because of the patience of God. You see how the same thing presented from a different perspective looks totally different? 
the patience of God. And Peter's saying, guys, count it as salvation. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Wait for these things. Look forward to these things, he says. You won't be disappointed. You won't be let down. As you look forward to the new heavens, to the new earth, to Christ coming back, the Lord judging in glorious wisdom, live lives here well. Don't live them in idleness or indifference. As you recognize the kindness and patience of the Lord more and more in your life, you'll be more and more motivated to live lives of active holiness while you wait. And by active holiness, I mean what he's talked about at the beginning of chapter 1 in Second Peter and all of, all of through First Peter. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to the day that Christ returns. In eager expectation, with hope, not sadness, not disappointment, with hope. And while we wait, that's how we live. These qualities should define how we live. When the master returns, how is he going to find you? Is he going to find you covered by the spotless, blemishless lamb of God? Or is he going to find you working because you think that's how you earn salvation or earn God's affection? Is he going to find you at peace or is he going to find you wrapped up in anxiety and worry? Peter's clear. You don't have to be. You, you don't need to be. You shouldn't be. There's a rest there that's still open for us today. And Peter's saying, find it. Through Christ. It's the only way. Faith in Christ. Through His righteousness. We're going to finish this book next week. But let me read these last two scriptures as we close today. Second Peter three seventeen and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that the Lord is coming back, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and in the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we glory in your patience. It's the only reason why any person that's hearing this right now today has the opportunity of hearing this right now today. Because you've extended time so that all those whom you are calling respond by faith. And there likely are some that are hearing that call, Lord, today. I pray that they would respond in the faith that you give, that gift of God, that they would be saved. Lord, everyone who hears this, Lord, is hearing the truth. And I, we can't pass over verses that we've looked at in weeks past. It says, you would desire, you, you would desire that they would be saved. And so, Lord, that call goes out today. You would desire that they would be saved. And this is how it happens, through faith in Christ, through putting his righteousness on as our own. 
and submitting to His authority. And so, Lord, um, we want to recognize the intent and the purpose of Your patience in our lives and not miss it. We certainly don't want to twist it to our own destruction. Lord, if, if You've maintained Your patience this far, we don't know how long You will, but You've given us a gift today. And so I pray for those who have not put their faith in Christ that they would see your patience as salvation this day. Not by their own righteousness, by following the law, but through their faith in Christ. I pray that you would lead them to repentance in your kindness today. In your name we pray, amen.